Christians and the law of Moses. How does this work? It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to a special edition of The Line of Fire. It's a special edition because I'm not going to be taking any calls, but I am going to be responding to major questions that we get on a regular basis and have for many, many years. And these are not questions just coming from a random person here and there. These are major questions that have come up for many years in the church among believers, questions I have asked and probed many a time. So I believe. You're going to be enriched and enlightened. Here's what we want to sort out, sort out together. Where do followers of Jesus stand as far as the law of Moses, the Torah, the commandments given by God to Moses for the people of Israel? In Hebrew, known as Taryag mitzvot, Taryag meaning 613 and mitzvot commandments. Where do we stand? Is it the same for everyone, for Jew and Gentile in Jesus? Is it one thing for a Jewish believer, another thing for a Gentile believer? Is there anything universal about it? Is it a matter of specific calling, conscience, leading? Now, I want to be candid. In a one-hour broadcast, we are not going to answer all the questions or even ask all the questions. And ultimately, some of you will totally agree with what I say. Some of you will totally disagree. And others will be somewhere in between. And to be fully candid again, these are questions that bring great academic, scholarly, theological discussion and have for centuries. So there's volume after volume after volume that's been written on these subjects and the relationship between the Old Testament and the New and the relationship between law and grace and how Paul lived and what Paul taught. And is there a difference between the the Gospels and the Epistles? or difference between Paul and James slash Jacob. Lots and lots of questions. I want to do my best to simplify as much as I can and to give some principles that I hope you will find helpful and life-giving. And then in the comments to the show, whether you're watching on YouTube, Facebook, listen to on the radio broadcast and join us online, you can weigh in and you can have your own discussion. I will get called a Judaizing legalist by some. I will get called an antinomian hyper-grace preacher by others. <laughs> In other words, I got to get accused of two completely opposite stances, depending on where someone's coming from. Neither of those have any truth in them whatsoever. All right. We start in Matthew 5, verse 17. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. Yeshua's famous words on the Sermon on the Mount. And there he says, do not think that I came to abolish the Torah, the law, or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Amen. I tell you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or seraph, so just speaking of a little mark of a, of a, of a letter, shall ever pass away from the Torah until all things come to pass. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others the same shall be called least in the kingdom of God. 
but whoever keeps and teaches them, this one shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees and Torah scholars, you shall not enter, never enter the kingdom of heaven. I, I think I misread kingdom of God where it says kingdom of heaven. But of course, they're synonymous in the gospel. Let's, let's just look at these verses a little further. Is Jesus saying that all of his followers, Jew or Gentile alike, are required to keep all of the law of Moses? Is there a reason that he mentions the law and the prophets? Is there a reason for that? What does he mean when he speaks of one of the least of these commandments? What does he mean when he speaks of being least in the kingdom of heaven or great in the kingdom of heaven? Is he saying that you, you get in either way, but some are higher, some are lower? And, and how does our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees and Torah scholars? I'm reading here from the TLV, the Tree of Life version. How is our righteousness to exceed that of the Pharisees and Torah scholars? Is it that many of them were hypocrites and we have to be true blue? Is it that we have to be more scrupulous in our observance than they were? Is it that our righteousness comes from the Messiah as a gift? Let's focus first on the words abolish and fulfill. There are some who say, well, if you look at the Hebrew words Jesus would have used or the Aramaic words he would have used, he was really talking about a certain type of teaching and affirming certain truths, etc. I understand that. But when I see the way the word plerao, to fulfill, is used in Matthew's gospel, when he's constantly quoting from the Hebrew scriptures and said, this happened to fulfill what the prophets have written. I must take that word in the same sense. And it would be the, the Hebrew word for to fill up. So he's saying, I'm not coming to abolish. Don't think that, that I'm coming and saying, forget the Torah, forget the law of Moses, throw it out. No, I'm not coming to abolish, but to fulfill. Now, if fulfill meant the same as abolish, in other words, I'm going to bring it to fulfillment and then we're done with it, that would have no meaning. If fulfill meant you're going to just keep doing what you've been doing all along, then, then fulfill has no meaning. There's something deeper. There is a destination. There is something that the Messiah is working towards, and he is the ultimate fulfillment of the law. But notice this, not just of the law, not just of the Torah, but of the prophets also. Why is that important? Well, how does he fulfill what's written in the prophets? Well, they said certain things would happen. The Messiah would do certain things. The Messiah would be a certain person, have a certain mission. And he brings that to fulfillment. The prophet spoke of his death, of his resurrection. He, he lives that out. What they spoke of finds its goal, finds its destination in him. So let's think of some aspects of the Torah. According to traditional Judaism, there are 613 commandments. And in exile, without a temple standing, the Jewish people, according to Jewish tradition, can keep 369 out of the 613 commandments. So they can keep most of them, but only a little over half overall. Now, if you'll go through the Torah carefully and look at every commandment having to do with forever, for all time, for all generation. If you'll focus on those, you'll see that we are unable to keep about 75% of those. I documented very carefully in volume four of answering Jewish objections to Jesus, if you want to dig in more and find out more. 
All right. So first thing, there is significance to Yeshua saying law or prophets, not just talking about the law. He's talking about the law or the prophets. So the entirety of the Old Testament, that would be kind of a shorthand way for speaking of it. He refers to it again in Matthew 7, 12, where he speaks of the law and the prophets, that if we love our neighbor as ourself, if we do to others what we would have them do to us, then this fulfills, this sums up the law and the prophets. So 5.17, he mentions Torah or prophets. 7.12 in the Sermon on the Mount, he mentions Torah and prophets. So there's a beginning and an end. There's, there's what you call inclusio, if you want to use a, a scholarly term there, that you, you, you've got the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. Before that, verses 3 through 16, that's like introduction, edification, the beatitude, you're the salt of the earth, you're the light of the world. That's the introduction. And then 7.13 on, that's the closing exhortation to enter by the straight gate, to beware of false prophets, to build your house on the rock. Right, that's the closing exhortation. And the heart of the Sermon on the Mount, 512, 517, excuse me, to 712, law or prophets, law and prophets. He mentions those. So let's think then of these many commandments that were given in the Torah forever that we cannot keep. For example, all of the commandments having to do with the blood sacrifices, all of the commandments having to do with cleansing and atonement all of the commandments having to do with the high priest and priestly ministry. None of those things can be kept. All right. And this is now for most of Jewish history, we have been unable to keep those commandments. Have we been left without atonement? Have we been left without a sacrifice? Have we been left without a high priest? No, Yeshua, the Messiah fulfills them. He takes them and brings them to their highest meaning. That which the Torah was pointing towards, he now fulfills in his life, and his death, his resurrection, his ongoing priestly ministry. All right. What about the moral requirements of the Torah? Things we can still keep today, like don't commit adultery and don't murder. He takes those to a higher level. I believe when he says the least of these commandments, he's talking about his teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. That's what I understand him to be talking about. Not to tell, for example, a Gentile Christian, and he's speaking to Jewish disciples there, by the way, but not to tell a Gentile Christian that if, if you break one of the dietary laws, if, if you eat a particular thing that the Torah says not to eat, then you're least in the kingdom of heaven. No, I don't understand him to be saying that. And we'll come to the dietary laws in a bit. I understand him to be saying that the commandments that, that he's going to exposit for us, what he's now going to open up for us, that if we do not keep and follow these things, it brings rejection. That's why he ends in Matthew 7, 21. That's why he says, there are not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only those who do the will of my father. And that's how I understand greatest and least, those that are highly exalted and those that are rejected. That can be debated, but that's secondary. So everything having to do with our approach to God, blood sacrifice, atonement, cleansing, tabernacle, high priest, priesthood, all of that, the atoning blood is fulfilled in Yeshua the Messiah. All right. That's why we have not had those things all this time. And if there is a third temple rebuilt, it's not for us. We don't need it. It'll be a final prophetic peace before the Jewish people recognize Jesus as the true Messiah. As for the moral commandments of the Torah, we now take them to a higher level through what Jesus says and does. All right. And, and all the other laws the civil laws, the things like that, which specifically are for Israel, 
under in a certain time and setting. We learn from them. We learn from them. We understand what's important to God. We learn principles from them. But obviously, we're not in a self-governing position. And obviously, there were laws under the Sinai Covenant that were given to bring about certain understanding, that were given to bring about a fear of God, that were given to keep Israel separate. And unless we believe that we're supposed to be, say, stoning to death a disobedient a teenager, a disobedient, rebellious, unrepentant teenager, or that we're supposed to be stoning to death those that break the seventh-day Sabbath, unless we believe that today, which some do, unfortunately, crazily enough, some do. Unless we believe that, we understand that we're under a new and better covenant, but every word of Torah is important. Every word of Torah is teaching us. We learn from it, and everything will have its purpose, and nothing go away until all of it is fulfilled. All right, much more to come, believers and the law. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Thanks for joining us, friends, on a special edition of the Line of Fire. Not taking any calls today and not responding to question after question like we sometimes do on a special broadcast where we take your Twitter questions or YouTube questions or Facebook questions or, of course, your calls. I am opening up scripture and thought in terms of believers and the law of Moses, believers and the Torah. Is there a difference between Jewish believers and Gentile believers? Now, some say, what about the distinction that Christian scholars make between ceremonial law, civil law, and moral law? They would say the moral law, that's like the Ten Commandments. So we keep the moral law. The question there is, what about the Seventh-day Sabbath? Was that for everybody or not? Separate debate. We'll come back to that. But we keep the moral law. The ceremonial law is now passed. It finds its fulfillment in Jesus. And the civil law we learn from and apply in our societies where applicable and where we have the power to make certain decisions. Now, in terms of analyzing the material in the Torah, that's a helpful subdivision, ceremonial, civil, and moral. It's a helpful subdivision, but it's not found explicitly within the Torah. And you'll see that the, the, the laws are often weaved together, one after the other, after the other, and back and forth. And you think, how, why is a ceremonial right next to civil with moral in between? It's because they were not divided in the Jewish mind, in the ancient Hebrew mind. They were not divided. There was just one Torah, one divine authoritative teaching that God gave. So it's useful for analyzing things. It's not useful for understanding the Torah as it was given. But again, to say that Messiah fulfills but not abolishes, he takes the moral requirements to a higher level. He reinforces the truth of the civil law, but it's something to learn from as opposed to something that we now apply. For example, when Paul quotes the passage frequently found in Deuteronomy about drive out the evil from among you, drive out the evil from among you. He quotes it in 1 Corinthians 5. He quotes it there in terms of excommunication of unrepentant believers in the church. But in its original context, it spoke of, of putting people to death for their unrepentant sin. So there are differences. In the Old Testament, the Israelites drove out the Canaanites. In the New Testament, we drive out demons. 
We don't dispossess the people. We dispossess the spiritual powers at work within them. Messiah fulfills the Torah by taking the moral requirements to a higher level. He fulfills the Torah by fulfilling the whole purpose of the blood sacrifice, atonement, priesthood system. He does that in himself. He makes us into a spiritual temple. And he fulfills the calendar of Israel. He is our Passover lamb. We celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread by purifying ourselves from wickedness. We receive the Spirit at Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. Messiah rises from the dead in the midst of the Passover season in conjunction with first fruits. And, and I, I jumped ahead to Pentecost and then back to first fruits. So it's, it's Passover, unleavened bread, first fruits, and then Pentecost. And then some months later, and we're still waiting for this. So he's fulfilled the first part. He dies in conjunction with Passover. We, he purifies us with unleavened bread. We, he, he rises from the dead at first fruits. He sends the spirit at Pentecost, feast of weeks. All right. That's been fulfilled. So the spring part of the calendar has been fulfilled. The fall part of the calendar is still to be fulfilled. His second coming with the sound of the trumpet, national atonement for Israel, and the ingathering of the nations. So Feast of Trumpets, which becomes Rosh Hashanah, the Jewish calendar. Then Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement. Then Sukkot, Tabernacles. That's still to come, right? So he says, all nothing will, will go away until it's all fulfilled, all right? Heaven and earth will pass away, but this won't pass away. So some of it has been fulfilled already, and some is still to be fulfilled. Now, here's what's interesting. We are not, as Jew or Gentile in Jesus, we are not under the Sinai covenant. Hebrews 8, Hebrews 9 explain that we are under a new and better covenant, the covenant spoken of in Jeremiah 31 verses 31 to 34. So we are under a new and better covenant. With this new and better covenant, God has forgiven our sins, we don't need the annual sacrifices. We have our feet washed and cleansed as we walk through this world and we still get polluted. In other words, we have not yet reached total, complete perfection and this world does pollute us, but we are once and for all forgiven in terms of salvation. I never need to go back and get saved again. I, I never need to, to go back and get born again, again, if I'm a child of God. In that sense, salvation forgiven once and for all. It is the new and better covenant when God forgives our sins and doesn't remember them anymore. All right. <clears throat> what about a distinction, though, between a Jewish believer and a Gentile believer? To repeat, we are not under the Sinai covenant. God has made a new and better covenant, one in which we experience the fullness of the law, the, that which the law points to, that which the prophets point to. Two. But look at what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Uh, he's talking about husbands, wives. He's talking about marriage. He's talking about, well, if you're married to a non-believer, if they want to stay with you, great, then they should stay with you. Maybe you can leave them to the Lord. If they leave, you're not bound. What about the children you have? Well, because you're a believer, the children are sanctified. And then he says this, 1 Corinthians 7, 17, only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each, let him walk in this way. I give this rule in all of Messiah's community. You're used to seeing that as all the churches, but Messianic translation emphasizes that means Messiah's community. All right, so here's the rule. This is what Paul teaches everywhere. Was anyone called, meaning called to salvation, 
when he had already been circumcised. Let him not make himself uncircumcised. Has anyone been called while uncircumcised? Let him not allow himself to be circumcised. Circumcision is nothing, and uncircumcision is nothing, obviously in terms of salvation, but keeping God's commandments matters. Let each one remain in the calling in which he was called. Were you called as a slave? Don't let that bother you, but indeed, if you can be free, make the most of the opportunity. For the one who is called in the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman, likewise the one who is called while free is Messiah's slave. You were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers and sisters, let each one, whatever way he was called, remain that way with God. All right. What does he mean if you're circumcised, don't become uncircumcised? How do you become uncircumcised? Well, there's a literal application and a spiritual application. We're going to emphasize the spiritual. But there's a little a literal application too. You know, there are men who've had vasectomies so they can't have more children and then realize they want to have more children or God convicts them about, about that. And now they have a reverse vasectomy operation in, in order to try to have kids again. There was in the ancient world a reverse circumcision operation. You say, why? Well, in the ancient Greek world, there was great pride in Hellenism and the Greek way of thought and life. It was more advanced and more enlightened. You had these primitive people still living by their ancient traditions and things like that. And, and the Jewish traditions were considered superstitious. They were considered antiquated, separatistic, whatever it was. You wanted to be like everybody else. You say, okay, I still don't get it. All right. For example, the athletic games, if you had the ancient Olympics, the men would compete in the nude. So if you were a circumcised male, everybody would know you're a Jew, you're different, you're one of those people. So there were actually Jewish men that underwent a, a miserably difficult and painful uncircumcision operation to have foreskin restored to their private parts so that they could look like the Greeks and be like the Greek. No, 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 we don't follow those antiquated ways. It's almost like you were part of a, oh, a very, very traditional Christian group and, and say you're a lady and the women wore bonnets and, and you could never have their hair out, could never wear makeup. They wore a very traditional outfit all the time and skirts or dresses that were down to the ankles, etc. cetera. And, and then they come out of that and they, they dress like everybody else. No, 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 I'm not like that anymore. Well, this obviously goes even farther with, with an operation. So there was a literal uncircumcision operation, and obviously a Gentile could become circumcised. A Gentile man could become circumcised. But Paul here is making a spiritual point more than anything. Okay, if when you were called, you're a Jew, you're circumcised, okay? Don't become uncircumcised. Don't become a Gentile. Don't, don't stop being Jewish. Obviously, you're not going to keep all the traditions the same way. Obviously, your relationship to the law is now going to change. but if you get saved as a Jew, you're still a Jew. Tragically, through much of church history, the church has told Jews, well, you can't live like a Jew anymore. Why, why are you celebrating Sabbath on Saturday? We do it on Sunday. Well, what, why are you having Passover meal? Forget that. Well, no, we celebrate the Messiah's resurrection during Passover. No, 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 forget, forget Passover. We do Easter. Why don't you have a Christmas tree in your house? What's the matter with you? You're a Christian now, aren't you? How can we not eat pork? You're a Christian. Why aren't you eating pork? I have Jewish friends of mine, Messianic Jews, who when they got saved were given a ham sandwich to prove they were really saved. 
In my book, Our Hands Are Stained With Blood, the new edition, the updated, expanded, revised edition coming out in September, I, I have lists of, of baptismal formulas that the Catholic Church required Jews to recite if they were going to be baptized in the church. They had to renounce any connection to Passover, Sabbath. They had to break all connection with Jewish family and friends. They had to pledge not to marry other Jews. They had to pledge not to give their children Hebrew names. They had to pledge devotion to Mary. They had to curse the rabbis. They had to say, I'm going to eat pork. Seriously, to get baptized. And Paul said, no, you could say this is a Jew. Don't become a Gentile. You could say this is a Gentile. Don't become a Jew. Now, you say, but if we're not under the Sinai covenant, what does it matter? Don't we all live exactly the same? Oh, not necessarily. Not necessarily. There are distinctions in our calling, not our standing. We're equal in God, but in our calling. That's what we'll pick up when we return. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Are believers under the law of Moses? This is Michael Brown. Welcome to the Line of Fire special edition of the broadcast. Not taking any calls today or any questions today, but opening up an important subject. Let me say this categorically. If someone comes to you and says you are required as a follower of Jesus, to obey the law of Moses. Don't get into an argument with them. Just walk away. You can politely walk away. No, if you solid theologically want to get into a debate, that's your business. But don't let, my point is, don't let anyone bring you under that because that is false. We are under a new and better covenant through the blood of Messiah. Under the law of Moses, there was not forgiveness for certain things that we can receive forgiveness from. Paul says that in Acts, the 13th chapter, at the very least, the way we receive forgiveness is very different as Paul lays out in Hebrews 9, or as Hebrews lays out, excuse me, in Hebrews 9 and 10. We don't know who wrote Hebrews. Could have been Paul, but don't think there's strong evidence that it was. Either way, Hebrews 9 and 10 tell us the way we receive forgiveness is different than under the law of Moses. And things have certainly changed with Messiah's coming into the world. He doesn't abolish the law of the prophets. He brings them to their fullness, their fulfillment, their full meaning. Now, look at what Paul writes in Romans 7. Then I want to talk about Jewish believers versus Gentile believers. In Romans chapter 7, uh, Paul is writing this, and there are Jewish and Gentile believers there in Rome. So Romans chapter 7, Paul says this, or do you not know, brothers for our ancestors, but brothers in Greek, for I'm speaking to those who know law, that the law is master over a person as long as he lives. For the married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if the husband dies, she is released from the law concerning the husband. So then if she is joined to another man while she, her husband is living, she'll be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, he's free from the law, so she's not an adulteress, though she is joined to another man. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you also were made dead to the Torah, to the law, through the body of Messiah, so that you might be joined to another, the one who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the flesh, 
The sinful passions that came through the Torah were working in our body parts to bear fruit for death. But now, verse 6, look at this. We have been released from the law, having died to what confined us, so that we serve in the new way of the Ruach, the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the letter. Now, Paul goes on to say, no, no, the Torah is not sin. It's holy, spiritual, and good. It reveals the sin in me. It reveals the junk in me. When God says, don't covet, now I want to covet. It shows my own sinfulness. So a goal of the Torah is to expose our sinfulness, show us our need for God, shut every mouth, both Jew and Gentile, and bring us into a place of dependence for God's mercy. Now, I, I want to continue in Romans, the eighth chapter. Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 1, where Paul explains that there is, therefore, now no condemnation to those of us who are in Messiah Jesus. We would be condemned because of our sin, because of our flesh, because of our disobedience. But because of what he did and our salvation in him, there's no condemnation. In other words, we're not damned. For the law of the spirit of life in Messiah Yeshua set you free from the law of sin and death. But it was impossible for the Torah, since it was weakened on account of sinful flesh, God has done. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and as a sin offering, he condemns sin in the flesh, that the requirement of the Torah might be fulfilled in us. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Ruach. We don't walk in the flesh, but in the spirit. What's Paul's point? And this is for Jew and Gentile alike, that there are righteous goals of the Torah, righteous requirements of the Torah a transformed life, a life of obedience to God that we could not live out. And because of the Torah's perfection and our imperfection, we were constantly condemned. Now, by new life in the Spirit and by the Messiah's righteousness, we live a new life that is pleasing to God and so live out the goal of God's Torah. That's what I believe Paul's saying in Romans 10.4, not so much that the that the law ends with Jesus, but it finds its fulfillment, its goal in the Messiah. So a, a few points. For sure, as followers of the Messiah, we are called and commanded to live holy lives. As followers of the Messiah, we are called and commanded to live by God's ethical requirements. They are repeated throughout the Torah, throughout the prophets, throughout the New Testament. If all you had was the New Testament, then you could live a life pleasing to God on a certain level. But the Old Testament gives the foundation and fills so much in. In certain places, we have the skeleton in the Old Testament and the flesh filled in uh, in the New Testament. Or you could reverse it that we have the skeleton, the basic structure of how we're to live in the New Testament, but it's filled out in the Old. You can look at it different ways. People have said the Old Testament is is concealed, uh, excuse me, the the, the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. There are different ways of looking at these things, all right? But for sure, as followers of the Messiah, we are called to live ethical, godly lives. And, and those requirements are not just found in the Torah. They're repeated in the prophets. They're repeated in Proverbs. They're repeated in the New Testament. This is for all believers, an ethical, moral life. Not specific laws of separation like dietary laws or mixing uh, two kinds of seeds in a field, or the type of beard a man has to wear. No, these are ethical moral requirements repeated in the prophets, 
repeated in the New Testament that are for all believers. And this is part of the Torah's goal. Now, a Jewish believer, not by being under the law, but by calling because of heritage, we may be called to live a certain way. I did, I did not get saved as a traditional Jew, and I've not tried to become a traditional Jew, and I don't take on the rabbinic traditions. I reject the authority of the rabbinic traditions because I'm under Messiah, not the rabbis. There's some traditions that are beautiful. There's some traditions that are neutral. There's some traditions that are negative. But I'm not under their authority in any case. I, I walk in the life of the Spirit, and I'm under the rule of Messiah, not under the rule of the rabbis and not under the power of rabbinic tradition. But I remain a Jew. I remain a Jew, and through coming to the Messiah, God has deepened my connection to my people, and he has deepened my desire to be a witness to my people, and has deepened my sense of mission to stand with my people. So, you know, when I was growing up as a kid, the idea of growing, going to Israel, didn't think of that at all. I mean, the thought literally never crossed my mind that I, I can remember, I want to go to Israel one day or find out about my roots. Didn't even think about that. Well, now I'm in Israel frequently, and it's important to me to be in Israel for, for many, many reasons. And if I am not traveling as, as far as speaking and ministering over a weekend, the day that, that in my heart is the day of Sabbath rest is, is Saturday, not because I'm under the Sinai covenant and there's a death penalty if I work, but rather I believe the, the principle of Sabbath is important. As a Jew, it's when my community identifies with this. So it's a way of me identifying with community. But as I'm not under the law in doing it. I'm not doing it out of obligation, but rather what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 7. If you're called to the Lord, circumcised, don't become uncircumcised. So yeah, I'm part of churches. I've been part of churches for years. For a shorter period of time, I've been part of a Messianic congregation. But for the most part in my history, I've been in churches, but I've been in churches as a Jewish believer. And the longer I've walked with the Lord, the more important that's become is my witness and as one who works side by side with Gentile believers all around the world, equals in the Messiah. Some of them are giants compared to me spiritually, but I'm saying we're, we have the same standing, right? There's no caste system. There's no class system. We're one in him. We, we, are, we are all equally sons and daughters of God, all equally priests to God, all equally branches of the vine, all equally members of the body. Yes, all equally brothers and sisters in him. So I emphasize that. And yet, just like Paul writes to women and says, women do this, do this. Then he writes to men, men do this, do this. Then he writes to parents, do this, do this. Then he writes to children, do this, do this. He writes to slaves, do this. He writes to masters, do this. Even though in Jesus, there's no slave nor free. Even though in Jesus, there's no male or female in terms of our standing. But in terms of our function and calling, yeah, we are different. And we find ourselves in different situations. The same with Jew and Gentile. I believe that there is a calling on Jewish believers that unites them with the people of Israel in a unique way, but it varies from person to person because we're not under the Sinai covenant. The ethics of the law, the morality of the law, we live by. The Messiah is the goal and center of the law and the one who fulfills the sacrificial system and the feasts and the priesthood and all that. Yes, he's central to us, but I am not laying it on a Gentile believer to live the way I live, all right? However, I also recognize that there are Gentile believers who are called by God to stand with Israel, that there, just as there are Jewish believers that are called to be in the church world, there are Gentile believers who are called to be in Messianic Jewish congregations. What I would urge them, though, is don't try to become a Jew. Don't, don't start 
dressing up as a Jew when you're walking down the street and trying to look like a Jew. And no, that's not your calling. And it is confusing when you share the gospel with a Jew because it makes what we're doing seem very superficial. What are you doing? What are you talking about, man? You're not Jewish and you're looking like an ultra-Orthodox Jew. You're not even Jewish. It makes what we do seem superficial, just like a costume that's being put on. That being said, there are many Gentile believers who absolutely are called to a deeper exploration of Jewish roots and who are leading members of Messianic congregations and in many cases make up the, the bulk, especially in cities that are in heavily Jewish areas, make up the bulk of a Messianic congregation and they're not Jewish themselves, but they recognize the, the beauty of the roots and they want to tie in together with that and show solidarity. But let it be Jew and Gentile together united as one instead of the Jew trying to become a Gentile and the Gentile trying to become a Jew. So I have Jewish believing friends that feel it's important for them to keep the dietary laws, not for righteousness, not because they're under the Sinai covenant, but in identification with our people, because these were some of the laws that God gave to Israel to keep them separate from, the old, from their other peoples. And if someone says, well, you're just cherry picking what you keep or don't keep. No, we would say that which was universally detestable, immoral, wrong, sinful in the New Testament is uniformly, universally detestable, sinful, wrong in the New Testament. That which was wrong for all peoples in the Old Testament is wrong for all peoples in the New Testament. There are certain laws that were just given to Israel to keep them separate from the nations. We learn from them. Some Jewish believers may still feel called to live by them, but we are not under them nor do we impose them on others. All right, we've got a few more minutes. We're going to dig in a little bit more on this subject, just trying to lay out concepts, thoughts that will help you to live this out. Give us strength to always do what's right. It's The Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown, your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Welcome, friends, to the Line of Fire broadcast. Special show today, not taking your calls, but talking about believers and the law of Moses. You know what's really interesting? You have to remember that in the earliest church, the earliest believers, the main leaders were all Jews. And in the first congregations, often the first believers were Jews. And this was understood to be a, a Jewish group following the Jewish Messiah in keeping with the prophecies that God gave to ancient Israel. So the big question is, okay, then that being the case, where do I fit as a Gentile? That was a big question. Where do I, how does this work with me as a Gentile? I'm like kind of nobody here. No, no, no. You're equal citizens in God's house. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you get to share in the blessings just the same, same spirit, same forgiveness, same God, same Messiah, same salvation. Yeah. Without having to become a Jew. Yeah, that was quite amazing. But you have to remember how Jewish things were. So, for example, in the book of Acts, it, it references a, a Sabbath day's journey right at the beginning of the book of Acts. Peter, in Acts 3, goes into the temple at the time of prayer. This is obviously customary to do as a Jewish man. He was in Jerusalem. Uh, when we get a little further down, in the 10th chapter of the book of Acts, we see that God had to communicate with him supernaturally to get him to go into the house of a Gentile. And that wasn't even Torah itself, but rabbinic 
extension or Jewish extension, traditional extension of the law to say you can't even go in the house of a Gentile, period. All right, or you know, eat with them. So God has supernaturally communicated with him. And when he did, he gave him a vision, a symbolic vision about eating unclean food. And, and the goal was not for Peter to go out actually and eat unclean food, but to learn that God was accepting the Gentiles now. And, and Peter said, I've, I've never eaten unclean food all my life. So the idea of, you know, the first apostles, that they threw off the law and they threw off the tradition and they were all now just kind of, you know, living like Gentiles in, in a complete sense, that's a misnomer. That's a misnomer. Now, when you get down to Acts 18, it tells us that Paul had taken a vow on himself, a Nazarite vow. Now, now what's important there is that there was no coercion. There was no situation in which he, he had to do it because of pressure. Like, are you really a Jew? Or have you, what's going on with you? Do you still follow Moses? No, this was just something he had done. It's just mentioned in passing. And then in Acts 21, Jacob, James, Yeshua's brother, says to, to Paul, look, you know how many myriads of Jews, probably tens of thousands of Jews there are here in Jerusalem who, who are following the Messiah and they're all zealous for the Torah. And look, they've heard that you teach Jewish believers in the diaspora, Jewish believers in other parts of the world, that, that they're to forsake Moses, forsake the customs and traditions. So show them it's not so. Paul says, yeah, of course I'll show them it's not so. So, and, and, then, and then in Acts 23, Paul says to himself, I'm a Pharisee. He said, well, he just did that politically because he knew that Sanhedrin was divided between Pharisees and, and Sadducees. And if he said that, it would create a controversy and they, they'd stop focusing on him. And of course, that's what happens. But was he lying? It's like me saying, I'm a Jehovah's Witness. I'm not. I'm a Mormon. I, I'm not. I'm a traditional Jew. I, I'm not. I'm an atheist. I'm not. So when Paul said, I'm a Pharisee, Obviously, he was still living a certain way. Remember when he visited a synagogue, they immediately welcomed him. It's like, what's this guy? What's this Gentile guy trying to do in our synagogue? No. So we understand that he knew that he knew he was not under, he was not under Messiah, the, the law of Sinai, the Sinai covenant. He was under Messiah's law, that he was under the law of the spirit and that he would live a certain way he would add things into his life to, to be with other Jews, to be a witness to them. In other words, things he knew that he didn't have to keep, he would keep for their sake. And when he was with the Gentiles, he wouldn't keep those other things. He said, of course, I'm still under Messiah's law. But, but the point is that, that Paul lived in a way that was recognizably Jewish and that he didn't feel the need to repudiate everything that was Jewish because he was a follower of the Messiah, but he would fight tooth and nail if anyone tried to require a Gentile follower of Jesus to live under the law and say, you you're, can only be saved by living by it, or you can only be sanctified by living by it, or you can only be fully pleasing to God by living by the Sinai covenant. No, he was very emphatic on that. But he says in Galatians 3 that the law, the Torah, was, was a schoolmaster, or in, in Greek it's close, it's the word we get pedagogue from, uh, a household slave that would, protect the children and then bring the children to school or teach the children, etc. And And that's what he says, the, the law is done. It's, it's been a pedagogue to bring us to the Messiah. And now that we've come to the Messiah, we're no longer under it. And what way are we no longer under it? We are no longer under its condemnation. 
We are no longer under it as a system of justification. We are no longer under it to bring us to the Messiah. Now God's righteous laws are written in our hearts. Everything pointing to Messiah written in our hearts. And as we walk with him, we will be obedient. You say, yeah, but Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Yeah, the commandments he gives us. If you read in John's gospel, the Greek word entale, commandment, which would be the equivalent of Hebrew mitzvah, commandment. When you look at it, every single time it occurs, every single time it occurs, it's, it's referring not to the 10 commandments or the commandments of the Torah, but to Yeshua's own commands. Love one another as I have loved you. Those types of things that he's teaching. Learn to be a servant as I have served. The, the abide in me as I abide in you. Those are the commandments that he gives. My word must abide in you, etc. So yes, if we love him, we'll keep his commandments. If we love him, we'll walk in obedience. But it doesn't mean if we love him that we will do everything that was in the Sinai covenant, especially as Gentile believers who are never commanded to do such. You say, what about the Seventh-day Sabbath? Everyone is welcome to observe the Seventh-day Sabbath. Everyone is welcome. God only gave it as a covenant sign to Israel, but everyone is welcome to it. You say, God established it at creation. Well, yes, he set apart the seventh day as holy at creation, but there's no mention of him ever speaking about it or commanding it until Exodus 16, which is confirmed in Nehemiah 9, that it was only when he was bringing the children of Israel out of the wilderness and, 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 and was now going to speak to them at, at Mount Sinai. This is when he begins to speak to them about the seventh-day Sabbath. Otherwise, they didn't know what it was. Anyone is welcome, Jew or Gentile, to observe the seventh-day Sabbath. Anyone is welcome, Jew or Gentile, to keep the feasts of Israel. Anyone is welcome, Jew or Gentile, to keep the dietary laws. But you must realize that we are not under that system. For a Jewish believer, it is often more of a point of identification. It is more of a point of solidarity with our people. For a Gentile believer, it is often saying, hey, God gave these. I find them good and wonderful. Why don't I follow them? Amen. Great. But don't find your identity there. Find your identity, as I do as a Jewish follower of Jesus, in Jesus. That is my primary identity, being in him. Being Jewish is secondary or tertiary. I'm I'm a follower of Jesus, I'm a male, I'm a Jew, but what matters, the, the non-negotiable, the thing of all things that defines who I am in God, the thing that is the difference between heaven and hell is being in Jesus, Yeshua. Therefore, there are going to be different expressions. Therefore, there are going to be people who have different convictions to live certain ways. What I want to encourage you to do is don't let anyone bring you into bondage. Don't let anyone squeeze you in, in, into some mold where you have to live a particular way. If you don't find it explicitly reinforced in the New Testament, step back from it. Let me say it again. If you don't find it explicitly reinforced in the New Testament, someone's trying to push you to live a certain way, step back from that pressure. Remember the Holy Spirit guides us into life. The Holy Spirit guides us into truth. The Holy Spirit guides us into freedom, not bondage. Is the law sin? No, no, no. Does the Messiah abolish it? No, he fulfills it. But the fact we've not had a temple, the fact we've not had sacrifices, the fact that the vast majority of the forever commandments we have not been able to keep since the temple's destruction, 
Either we are bereft, we have nothing, we're lost, or we follow the rabbis and rabbinic tradition, or we say Messiah came and gave us a new and better living way. And, and what do I tell a traditional Jew who looks at me and says, we're not Jewish. You're not wearing a yarmulke, head covering. You, you don't have the fringes, the ritual fringes. And, and Jewish men, you don't have a beard. And you don't follow our teachings on the Sabbath. And I, I tell them, I am a Jew as much as you are a Jew. And I'm following the Messiah and living in obedience to our covenant in light of the coming of the Messiah and in the life of the Spirit. I am never going to be more traditional than a traditional Jew. I, I am never going to be able to show them, hey, hey, look, I'm more zealous for the traditions and commandments that you are. That is a hopeless task, and it's not one that will reduce life and fruit. No, we live under a new and better covenant. Still as Jews, but under a new and better covenant, enjoying life in the Spirit. And our Gentile brothers and sisters are absolutely one with us because the Messianic era has begun. It's not in its fullness, but it has begun. And one day it will be in its absolute fullness. But we enjoy in our own lives the fullness of salvation, of forgiveness, of knowing God, of having him as Abba, and of knowing that we know that through the Messiah's death and resurrection, we are forgiven and we have been set free from bondage to sin. What's the great emphasis ultimately? The Torah was given to Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus the Messiah. The latter builds on the former. The former points to the latter. Obviously, we've raised a lot of questions as we've answered questions, but hopefully you find this helpful as we move forward together in God. Check out the many related resources at Ask Dr. Brown. Now go.